Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 1 from Part 2, How Shall We Respond, from the book Secret Believers, What Happens When Muslims Believe in Christ, by Brother Andrew and Al Jansen. Chapter 1. It was early in 2002, shortly after coalition forces drove the Taliban from power in Afghanistan. Fighting still raged in the region, and a couple of times we heard American bombers fly overhead to target in the nearby Tora Bora Mountains, where Al-Qaeda leaders were hiding. We traveled to this meeting in an SUV through a narrow, winding mountain pass. Often we had to grab onto the handles above the passenger windows to keep from being thrown about as we bounced over the rocky, uneven road or swerved to avoid oncoming traffic on a road that was rarely more than a lane and a half wide. But our travels were easy compared to those of the men and women we met. Several of them had walked all night or endured hours crammed with twenty others into a van that might comfortably seat twelve. They came from Jalalabad and Kunar and Kandahar, rugged areas where the Taliban had risen and to which these extreme practitioners of Islam had retreated, figuring that they might elude capture for years in the caves of the rugged mountains of Hindu Kush. On our arrival, the men approached us one by one and welcomed us with huge smiles and handshakes, often followed by huge hugs. We could smell the sweat on them and knew many hadn't bathed in days. All but two of them had a beard and all wore the traditional shalwar kamez, baggy one-size-fits-all pants and knee-length shirts, usually brown or tan. Some wore jackets or sweaters over the shirts to ward off the cold mountain air. One old man was wrapped in a rough brown woolen cloak. Several also wore distinctive tribal hats, a rough brown woolen chitrali, or a white knit nimazai, staying back in a dark corner where were two women, both completely covered in their uh, burqas, our host didn't introduce them, but said they were wives of two of the men. There was no electricity in the house where we assembled, and blankets covered the windows to prevent unwanted observation. Apart from a little sunlight leaking at the edges of the window coverings, candles provided the light. As I looked at the men around me, I couldn't help but wonder what would happen if the CIA suddenly banged or barged into this house. Judging by appearances, all of these men would probably have been carted off to cells in Guatemala, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, but only because soldiers look at outward appearances. God looks at hearts, and he allowed us to get a glimpse of what we saw. For the next few hours, we were transported into a world f- few had experienced, 
and in the process we became convinced that there is a genuine Christian solution to the scourge of terrorism. We started our meeting with singing. This was Pashtun territory where tribes from the dominant people group of Afghanistan lived. These men were memorizing and singing psalms in Pashito, and the song leader was a former mullah with a hauntingly beautiful chant chanting voice. His face radiated joy, and once he spoke to us in broken English, I want to be a mullah for Jesus. Naturally, we needed an interpreter to translate into English, so it took a while to learn their stories. The first man to speak was El Elif. He was a receding uh, he, he had a receding hairline, and instead of the traditional Afghan beard, he sported a droopy mustache. He explained that under the Taliban, all men were required to wear beards, and that enforcers would accost them in the street and measure their beard. Aleph held up his fist to indicate that a passing uh, grade was a f fistful of chin hair. Often, those who failed the test were beaten. He had shaved his beard after the fall of the Taliban. Until he became a refugee, Aleph was a farmer and his cash crop was opium. He also raised barley and vegetables, but he admitted sheepishly that the only way to support his family was to grow poppies from which opium is produced. It's a tragic fact that today 90% of the world's opium supply comes from Afghanistan. He survived during the war with the Soviet Union in the 1980s, but the subsequent civil war drove him and others south to the refugee camps surrounding uh, Peshawar. At the time of the invasion of coalition forces in 2001, some 3 million Afghans lived in northern Pakistan on the edge of the tribal territories. Alif lived there for nine years. Many like him learned about Jesus in those camps. Alif was a student of literature and loved to listen to news on the radio. One day he found a new channel and heard an announcer speak about Jesus Christ being like a shepherd. He contacted the people who produced the program and acquired some Christian literature in Peshito. I read about the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ, he told me proudly. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He walked on water. When I looked at the miracles, I said, There is no man who can do these things. These are divine characteristics. He described the changes in his life as entering into another world, perhaps not unlike the feeling I, as a Dutchman, felt entering into the Afghan culture. I lost the fear of death, Alif said. Naturally, he wanted to tell those closest to him about the transformation, but he was shrewd. He told his wife he had found a new book, but didn't tell her what it was. He started reading stories to her from the Gospels. Gradually, his wife responded and wanted to know what book he was reading. 
In time, she joined him in his new journey following Jesus. Like all the Pashtun men in the room, Alif had been a devout Muslim, but he insisted he had no choice. Unless you have a choice, you can't choose. Then I was given the other option, and I chose the right one. And now Alif was spreading the word. Proudly, he took out a piece of paper. On it were sixty names. These are the people I am discipling, he said. As soon as Alif finished his story, others wanted to tell us about their spiritual journeys. Jim told about a dream he had. There was a large pond, and Jim was trapped in the middle of it, unable to swim to shore. A man dressed in white and riding a white horse galloped up, reached out, grabbed Jim's hand, and pulled him to safety. Why did you rescue me, Jim? asked the man. The rider in white replied, I wanted to save you, and I've saved you. But who was the rider? Jim pressed the man to reveal his identity. Finally, the rider announced that he was Jesus Christ. Bia was a burly man with a thick black and gray beard. He was a high school teacher and told about living through the Civil War and his growing uh, disgust at the atrocities committed by Muslims against fellow Muslims. Thievery, adultery, stealing, corruption. This was taking place all around me, Bia said. He determined to make a comparative study of other religions and in the process learned about Jesus, but he didn't understand the significance of the prophet Isa until Aleph visited his village and gave him some books that opened up the truths of the gospel. When Koaf met his first Christian, uh, he was a boy living in a refuge refugee camp. Apparently, his English teacher was a missionary, and Kof was so impressed by him that he invited the teacher to become a Muslim. The teacher smiled at the student and said, You are too young, and I can't talk with you now, but I will pray for you that you will read more and make a good choice. In Peshawar, Kof discovered a church with a small library that allowed him to read about Christianity but the more he came to understood the Christian faith, the more curious he became about his own faith. So for several months he studied and faithfully practiced Islam. Gradually he grew restless and returned to the church reading room where he met a teacher who could answer his questions and help him understand the Christian faith. I now disciple others, he announced proudly, and eighteen people have come to know the Lord. There was also a sad element to his report. His father-in-law had conspired with Kof's father to take away his wife and three children. His family was being forced to live with his wife's father until Kof returned to Islam. I haven't seen him now for the last two months, he said. Then there was Sheen, a short, sinewy man who wore a black Shawar Kamez. Uh, His testimony was simple yet elegant. There is a way of peace, and that's the way of Jesus. Sheen knew the mountain passes like we know the streets in our neighborhood, and for years he transported guns on mule trains via treacherous 
trails from Pakistan to the Mahadeen in the Jalalabad area. With loads of opium, he retracted his route back into Pakistan. Today, he smuggled a very different sort of contraband, Christian books and Bibles. Avoiding border stations and checkpoints, he spent up to two weeks transporting each load of precious cargo. When Al asked if he was if he carried a gun, Sheen gave him a curious look. Of course he carried guns, a Kalashnivko and a pistol. I could imagine him wearing a bandolier across his black shirt with his machine gun slung over a shoulder as he led his mules and kept alert for a possible ambush that might endanger his mission. Though he couldn't read what he smuggled, like more than half of all Afghans, he was illiterate. He had spent several seven months in prison after he was caught with a load of New Testaments. He didn't understand why the authorities would be upset with him. What did they prefer for him to transport good books or guns and drugs? There is a dignity and respect of human life in the Christian faith, he said, that has brought great consolation and peace to me. In this faith I am not ignored or neglected, but God is interested in me. A voice spoke from behind one of the burkas, and we were told that one of the wives was requesting prayer. Kaf, her husband, explained that they had been married for nine years and had no children. I asked the woman if she would like to tell me her testimony. She spoke very softly, saying, My husband saw a dream and talked to his brother who told him about this new system. I knew they wouldn't tell me to believe in something wrong. I prompted her to talk a little more. She explained that Jesus changed my husband's life and his behavior toward me, his barren wife. I try constantly to please God and not make him angry, but I am barren and of no use. My heart went out to this woman. I knew it was a very sensitive situation. In this culture, a woman's worth and honor were directly tied to the number of her children. I prayed for this couple, asking that God would hear their cry, just as he heard the prayer of Hannah, the mother of the Old Testament prophet Samuel. Silently, I also prayed that this woman would know the love and comfort of Jesus, whether or not God blessed this couple with children. The primary reason for this meeting was to baptize a dozen men and two of their wives who were the leaders of the developing church in Afghanistan. Before we started the ceremony, I delivered a short message that seemed so appropriate in my in, in this setting. My text was 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How I wished everyone could witness the amazing transfer, transformation of these people. Each of them lived in a radical Muslim society. They had all endured war and the terrifying, terrifying rules, a rule of perhaps the most fundamentalist, legalistic Islamic sect. Many had lost everything 
because of tri tribal warfare and had lived for years as refugees, but they were all transformed by the gospel. Alif was a poet and had written a hymn that expressed the transformation of these people. As I listened to Alif and then the rest of the men sing, I experienced so thoroughly the emotion of the chant that I felt I had been transported out of this world into heaven. When they were finished, our translator tried to convey the words of the poem. After hearing the rhythm rhythmic beauty of the song in Peshito, the English words seemed somewhat pedantic. It was a long poem that recalled many of the miracles of Christ. Then it switched direction, praising God for the miracles in their own lives. You are the only one, the Holy One, without sin. Only through you can we experience cleanliness. You became our substitute. You saved us from our sins. Your grace is on us, and we experience it. The way you used to love your disciples on earth, you love us also. The way they loved you, we want to love you too. The refrain, repeated many times throughout the song, went something like this. There is power in you, in your hands. After the baptism service, the man opposite me, who wore a white beard and a white nimazai, started talking and waving his right hand. What is he saying? I asked our translator. The man looked seventy years old, but I knew that he was probably much younger. The average life expectancy of men in Afghanistan was only forty-five years. My interpreter explained. He says that he had a stroke a few months ago, and his right arm was paralyzed. He prayed that when he was baptized that God would heal him. He is waving his arm to say that God has healed him. This was Nazim, a man who loved learning, and shortly after the service returned home to his village and started teaching children to read and write, primarily using stories from the Injil. One morning, about two years later, the local mullah, a member of the Taliban, entered Master Nazim's home uh, with others from the local mosque and beat him severely, yelling, Why do you teach our children from the Injil and not from the Quran? All they need is Quran. The mullah threatened to return and kill Nazim if he didn't stop. When the mullah and his thugs had left, Nazim asked his wife and two children to quickly run and call together family and friends along with his students. Within a few minutes, there were approximately 25 people crowded into his home. Despite the pain from his injuries, he gathered the strength to say to the assembly, I want to tell you something very important. He then recounted his journey to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He concluded by reading from the Gospels and saying, Jesus, by giving his life for us, releases us from the burden of sin and links us with God. He challenged his listeners to follow Jesus. Then he fell over and died. When that disturbing news reached me at once, the thought flashed through my mind. From John twelve twenty four. Verily, verily, 
I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground, and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, Nazim's wife was expelled from the village, but she had relocated to another area where she teaches young women to read and write. To my knowledge, there was no church in the Pashtun area of South Afghanistan before 2000. As I write today, there are several thousand believers in Jesus in that region. They are the church in Afghanistan. They meet in secret, but they are exuberant in their joy. Does this story change the way you view Muslims? When you see pictures of large Muslim crowds protesting cartoons of Muhammad in London or Lahore, do you see them as a threat or do you see them as a mission field? The first challenge I want to propose is this. Challenge 1. Do we view Muslims as enemies or are we seeking to win them to Christ? <laughs> so that's challenge 1. Here we go. Is it possible that we are concentrating too much on the threat of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and other Muslim fundamentalist groups? Perhaps it is time for us to ask if God is working in the hearts of these men. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenged the common thinking about how to relate to the soldiers of the Roman occupation. And it says, see Matthew 38 through 48. So let's go to Matthew 38. Matthew 538 to 48. Let's go there. Matthew 538 to 48. Alright, Matthew 538 to 48. And read this. Alright, so 538 to 48 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Go with him twain. Uh, give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect." So that was Matthew uh, 5, 38 through 48. And he says here, um, 
continued on, uh, we read the passage, and uh, he elaborates on verses 43 through 44, and it says, Jesus illustrated this with three particular situations. The first was if someone struck you on the cheek, loving your enemy meant turning to him the other cheek. Second, if someone sued you for your tunic, you were to give him your cloak as well. And third, if a Roman soldier forced you to carry his pack one mile, you were to go with him two miles. Now, why would Jesus suggest carrying the soldier's heavy burden a second mile in the hot Middle Eastern sun? Because the first mile was compelled by law, but when the victim offered to carry it a second mile, naturally the Roman soldier would want to know why he was willing to carry the pack beyond the legal requirement. That provided the man an opportunity to tell the soldier about Jesus. Today we walked the first mile by following Jesus. I promise, or excuse me, I propose that we walk the second mile by sharing the love of Jesus with Muslims. Jesus said we are to love our enemies to our minds. That just doesn't make sense. How can we love someone we hate? But that's the brilliance of this command. For if I decide to love someone, that person cannot remain my enemy. Often I have said that the best way to disarm a terrorist with a gun is to go up and hug him. Then you are too close for him to shoot you. If I love someone, surely I will attempt to give him or her the greatest gift imaginable. That means sharing the good news of the gospel. The call of the church is to go and make disciples from all peoples and nations. And that's Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. So let's go there. Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And read this. So Matthew 28 and verses 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Alright, so that was Matthew 28, 18-20. And he continues on. In light force, I told about my outreach to Hezbollah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad. Surely this demonstrates that Muslim fundamentalists are reachable, and anyone who is reachable is uh, winnable. Maybe you have had no opportunity to meet such extremists, but surely there are Muslims in your city. Do you know any? Have you made friends with them? Consider this. You may be the only Jesus they will ever meet. Some people may object to my statement that I seek to win Muslims to Christ, but I point you to the words of the Apostle Paul who said uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.19, and let me read you what he said in 1 Corinthians 9.19. Go there. 1 Corinthians 9.19. Alright, so 9.19 says, 
For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. <clears throat> and that's uh, what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.19. And continuing on, he says, he goes on to say that to Jews he became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, he became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, he became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. Finally, to the weak, Paul became weak to win the weak. Verses 20-22 through 22 of the same um, book there, 1 Corinthians 9, 20-22. Paul's passion was to win as many people as possible to Jesus Christ. Shouldn't that be our passion for Muslims? Oh, mm. Please understand that this does not mean we force anyone to follow Christ, right? That is not our responsibility, and we cannot do so and we cannot do so anyway, for it is God Himself who draws people to Christ, as we've seen from the testimonies of our Afghan brethren. In centuries past, some Christians have attempted to convert people at the point of a sword. That goes against every command of our Lord. It is love that wins people to Christ, not force. <laughs> yeah, right about that. So we can't force people to trust Jesus. We can tell them, and they have to make their own decision if they want to or not. All right, continuing on in the book, he says in March twenty, or excuse me, in March two thousand six, the world seemed to awaken for a moment to the possibility that a Muslim could change his faith when he learned about the case of. Abdul Rahman, who was arrested and accused of attacking Islam for the simple reason that he had converted to Christianity 16 years earlier. If convicted, he would be executed under Afghan Islamic law. An outcry, an outcry rose from Western countries that had spent billions of dollars and sacrificed hundreds of lives to set Afghan Afghanistan free from the draconian rule of the Taliban. This was not behavior expected from a freely elected government. The administration of Hamid Karzai needed to find a face-saving solution. It was determined that Rahman was insane and he was released and allowed to slip out of the country and take refuge in Italy. The world breathed a sigh of relief and moved on to other news, but all was not well. Away from the spotlight, two more Christian converts from Islam were immediately arrested. Another was severely beaten and hospitalized. Several more were subjected to police raids on their homes or intimidated by threatening telephone calls. I wonder how many of these persecuted brothers were ones Al and I had met in that mountain town in the vicinity of Tora Bora. We really should not have been surprised by what happened to Abdul, Abdul Rahman in December 20, 20, 2003. I received a copy of a letter from my Christian brothers in Afghanistan addressed to President George W. Bush pleading with him to intervene to prevent the confirmation of an Afghan constitution that would impose Islamic law on the nation. I learned later that they had fasted and prayed for many days before sending this letter. 
Please hear their heart as I quote just one section of the letter. There was no concept of freedom during the time of Taliban, and after the fall of Taliban, we thought that with the coming of U.S., there will be a new constitution that would give freedom to choose religion to every person, which is a basic right of every human being, and Muslims are converting hundreds of Christians and other religious people into their religion, but when a Muslim is converted to Christianity or other religion, they are threatened, persecuted, and killed. Now we have that draft uh, of the new constitution, which is almost the same as the Taliban time. The letter was sent to a person who had connections with a senior official in the White House who promised that he would get it on the president's desk. Unfortunately, that's the last that I heard. I could never confirm that the president ever saw or read the letter. I quote this letter to demonstrate that we in the West need to recognize that there are many Muslims who may want to come to Christ if they are given the chance. Are we doing everything in our power to make sure that they have that opportunity? Certainly, we owe them that much. Huh. And that is where we end today. Today, and next time, chapter 2. Hmm.